Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Okay. Yes. Okay. And Perfect. thank you, Vermont Studio Center and the Rona Jaffe Foundation. Really happy to be here and to see you all tonight. Um, I'm going to read um, just a really short part of the body papers. I don't think I've read this before, but this is the author's note. And then I'll read um, a complete short story and um, a piece of flash CNF, and then we'll have time uh, for questions. Okay, so this is from the body papers, the author's note. My story is not only my story. While everyone has the right to report their own lives, I know that telling my secrets impacts other people. To preserve their privacy, I've changed the names of most living family members and friends who appear here. In some instances, I named people with a Tagalog word for our kinship tie. This book is a memoir and is based on my memories, but I also cross-reference documents, photographs, records, timelines, elementary school report cards, and the journals I've kept since I was a child. Still, some may dispute my recollection of events. Others may wish I had not written down such things for everyone to see. Because I wanted to protect others from my story, I did not share or write about these memories as nonfiction for a long time. Once I became an aunt and held my niece for the first time, tiny and only days old, I realized how dangerous it was to protect the wrong people by telling only the happy stories. Lies of omission created the conditions that allowed someone more powerful than me to hurt and exploit me for most of my childhood. At this point, I've waited long enough that many implicated in this book have died. I didn't write this book for them. I wrote it for me and for you, the living, and for those who come after me. So that was from The Body Papers. Um, and I wanted to read it as an introduction. Maybe it'll um, come up in, uh, if people come to the craft talk tomorrow, um, some of the decisions I've made and what to include and not include in the work. Um, we, can, we could talk about that. And if you have questions later tonight too, we can talk about that. Um, but the collection is um, started out as essays, most of them published. And then I worked with my editor, Nathan Rostron, um, and Restless Books for off and on for about a year to turn it into what it, the, 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 um, the version it is today. All right, um, so the next slide um, is, um, let's see. So this is a short story that I published in Vita, and um, the story's called 1984, and I'll read it in its entirety, it's about 20 minutes long. Um, and it's a short story uh, that takes place in the year of 1984. Um, pretty analogous to the time when I was a teenager. Um, and um, I'm working with this material for a novel that I'm writing called We Girls. And there is an author's note that the story includes instances of self-harm, physical violence, and abuse. 1984. That was the year everyone was referencing George Orwell's 1984. How many times did I hear 1984 is 48 backwards, the year he wrote the book. All you had to say was big brother, thought crime, or double think, and we were all in on the same joke. It was the first time in my life that I didn't have to hide that I was a reader, a lover of books. 
At age 13, I kept plenty of other secrets. Our teacher, Mrs. H, somewhere between middle and old age, we couldn't tell the difference, had clearly been waiting a long time for this day to teach 1984 in 1984. She sashayed between the desks and pulled paperbacks from her tote bag, each battered reprint wearing a different cover. She raised each book over her head, pausing dramatically in front of each student before dropping it on their desk, unaware of how her arm vibrated and shook beneath the cap sleeves of her polyester blend blouse. Flarm. We delighted ourselves with our inventions, our insults for what terrified us. Mrs. H's theatrics were inefficient, but we encouraged our teachers to go off on tangents and tell stories, to fill our minutes together with anything other than the lesson plan. When she was finished, Mrs. H stood in a shaft of sunlight by the window. Her blue eyes shimmered. She was almost beautiful. Mrs. H wanted us to remember this day. 1984, in 1984, she said, sometimes you just have to take a moment and breathe it all in. Sometimes you have to tell yourself to look around and remember all of this. She looked into each of our eyes for an uncomfortably long time. Some of us started to giggle. Here we are, 1984. My copy shouted 1984 in a bright orange font shadowed in purple. The top right corner of the white cover, front and back, had teeth marks. Human. What kind of a person bites a paperback book? I traced the indentations, incisors, and molars. Remember this day, please. This town had not been particularly kind or open-minded to us, the only Asian immigrant family living within its borders. They wouldn't even fix their faces to hide their obvious preference for the good white immigrants. As soon as I crossed the stage to receive my high school diploma, I would forget them all, every one of those pleasant racists who insisted they didn't see color. Maybe Mrs. H cursed us, though, as she stood in that slice of sunlight, because as hard as I've tried to forget it, I remember 1984. It tastes of metal. In 1984, we girls wore fluorescents from socks to lips to hair bows. Every morning before the bell rang, we girls skated figure eights through the hallways, making our own sound, swoosh, swoosh, hundreds of flats sweeping the fresh floors with our souls. Our teachers were always coming out from their classrooms with papers in their hands to bark, pick up your feet, girls, walk for God's sake. But if I'm honest, the reason I remember 1984 is because of Agatha. And of course, the choking game. Only we girls participated, and we knew to keep our mouths shut if we wanted to continue playing. Come to think of it, after a childhood of hopscotch and jump rope and four square, this was our last organized game. In high school, the only games we played were on each other, not with each other stealing each other's boyfriends, making drama between two best friends, accusing someone of doing something that we ourselves had done. We only stopped because we had no choice. Afterwards, we could barely look each other in the eye again. At 13, we needed our game. 
Upon reaching middle school, suddenly we had become bad at all the things we used to be good at. Math, pinning a formaldehyde frog to a tray and finding its parts with a scalpel, looking people in the eye, sports, running for class office, doing anything better than the boys. But we were masters of keeping each other's secrets. We plucked them like wildflowers from the dark pastures of our lives, creating exquisite bouquets that we held for each other, bridesmaids at the weddings to our shame. Jill threw up after every meal. Kate scratched the skin under her clothes with the needle she taped behind her full-length mirror. Linda's backpack was full of things she'd lifted from Bradley's and Zare. I covered the old and new bruises that my parents would give me with belts, slippers, rulers, magazines, and closed fists. So when we girls found the choking game, we finally had a secret that we could all share. Doreen started it in the girls' locker room after gym class. She wanted to show us something cool that we had never seen before. I volunteered to go first, even though I had no idea what it was. Doreen was pretty and popular, and everyone trusted popular girls. The others crowded around the wooden benches and metal lockers. I let Doreen lead me to the wall as if we were slow dancing, her face so close to mine that I could smell her cinnamon apple gum, and I resisted the urge to stick my finger in her mouth and strum those tiny purple rubber bands stretched between her braces brackets. Would purple rubber make a purple sound? I curled my fingers into fists. On ACE days, Doreen and I shared a desk where she sat during third period and I sat in fourth. And one time, I found a piece of her cinnamon gum stuck under the desk, still wet and warm, and felt close to her. I scraped her gum from the desk and held a piece of her inside my mouth, chewing and imagining myself turn into Doreen the way Midas turned his wife into gold. If I chewed enough gum, could I transform into a real American girl? Back then, I still believed in wishes and miracles. Back then, my deepest desire was whiteness. I was so close to the superpower all the time. I thought my proximity would shed its power onto me. But I could never get close enough. I was always looking through a foggy window, always removed from whiteness, even if I could see it. Doreen's cool fingers circled my neck, and she pressed me against the tile wall of the locker room, her knees in my thighs to keep me still. In the locker room mirrors, I caught a glimpse of myself. I was the center for once, and all these white girls were trying to see me. Stand up straight, Doreen asked. We girls all talked like Doreen now, every statement and command a question. My friend's cousin in Toronto told her how to do like this. It's magic. Breathe fast like this. Doreen demonstrated. She huffed like a pregnant woman giving birth. Her thumb searched for the right spot on my neck. She pushed against me and her voice lowered to ask an actual question. What are you again, like Chinese or Japanese? There were no other Asians at JFK Middle, unless you counted the afternoon janitor. His left hand was missing two fingers, and his face was always flushed red. Be nice to him, adults told us. He's your future husband, the girls told me. Everyone knew about the flask he hid in his cart, but he was a quiet, peaceful drunk, always smiling, 
And besides, it was rumored that he lost his entire family during a war in Cambodia, Vietnam, or was it Laos? Who could bother to know the difference? Even though she was taller than me by a head, I was close enough to see that Doreen's green eyes were flecked with brown flower petals. Doreen's face was screwed up like she was thinking something too hard, remembering something, and I wanted to tell her that she was putting too much pressure on my neck, but suddenly I was not attached to my body anymore. I couldn't control my thoughts. I was the lead actor in the play, and at the same time, the audience. I felt released, as if I was a paper doll, and Doreen had snipped the last bit that was tethering me to the sheet of paper. I felt ecstatic, the way I did after laughing so hard that I thought I'd split in two. Since moving from Manila, I never laughed that way anymore. Until this moment, I had never felt comfortable enough to let go in front of these people. I woke up on the locker room floor, and my first thought was a rebuttal. I don't have dirty knees. My mouth tasted like new pennies. I wiped my lip and found blood on my hand. The girls were clapping, and I found myself clapping too, as if I was connected to the girls with an invisible string, miming whatever they did. Doreen was trying to ask a question, but couldn't push the words out of her mouth. She was laughing so hard. What crazy thing did you say, she asked, about your knees? I sat up and leaned against the wall, dizzy and still not quite in control of my mouth. The sentences spilled out quickly as if someone else was speaking the words. I'm not Chinese or Japanese, and I don't have dirty knees. I don't eat dogs or cats, and I'm so bad at math, I said. The glass shield between my thoughts and my voice shattered. Everyone was quiet and focused for me, listening. I took a rocket to the sun, but it burned me to a crisp. I kept going, uttering every unfiltered thought spilling out of me until I had nothing left to say. Everyone was quiet, but once Doreen broke the silence to laugh, we girls knew how to interpret the moment. We kept saying, oh my God, until our voices slushed together into, oh my God. I laughed at them, laughing at me, and felt closer to them than I did to my family. For once, I belonged. Who's next, Doreen asked. I slid out of the way and watched as one by one, Doreen gave each girl a turn. We watched each other fall to the floor. Falling meant you were high. Double think. I looked at their faces for the exact moment each girl left her body. It was like watching them die, just a little bit. We became addicted to our game, playing it every chance we got in the locker room, several times a week. We told ourselves that we were nothing like the Zoofs, kids who used real drugs like pot or coke, even though Nancy Reagan told us all to just say no. We were impressed when we heard that the Zoofs wanted in on our game, but which one of us had talked? We weren't going to play it with them. We didn't want to be liable, but mostly we didn't want to turn into Zoofs ourselves. Their drugginess might rub off onto us. Which one of you girls told the Zoofs, Doreen asked, or was it Big Brother? Whoever is spying is lying. We were careful when we played our game. We had policies. Only Doreen put her hands on our neck. No one did it to Doreen. If you weren't careful, you could die, like actually die. Doreen said the game was so dangerous that the government stopped their warnings for fear that they would only introduce more children to the game. The rule was never play at home by yourself. We girls promised each other, but I was bored one afternoon. I breathed fast and shallow and pretended my hands were Doreen's. 
She wasn't so special. She wasn't the only one with this power. I woke up face down on the basement floor, no idea how long I had been out, and my eye had just missed the sharp corner of the coffee table. I had escaped visible injury or even death. In my head, I promised Doreen and the girls that I would never break our rule again. The problem with being 13 was the eternal now. What were consequences? What was death? What was forever? Despite the dangers or because of them, we girls played because we liked how we felt. It wasn't about the high. We liked being together, as if we were reclaiming something that had been taken away from us. We were witches, all powerful. The choking game wasn't like sports or Monopoly. No one won or lost until someone did. We could have gone on without incident for months, but our one mistake was Agatha, the new girl. A few months before, she appeared in town from somewhere far away in rural, Western Mass or Tennessee, no one had bothered to find out. Finally, there was someone stranger than me. Her skin was the shade of white idealized in literature, but in real life, Agatha looked freakish. She could not let sunshine touch her or it would burn and her skin would burn and bubble. She was the tallest girl in our class and always seemed in danger of falling. She moved like a newborn giraffe, and if you walked too close to her, she startled, causing your hands to reach out to catch her. We girls resented her for this, how she forced you to take care of her. Agatha, an only child, and her parents had, her parents had suddenly come into a lot of money. Oil or computers, no one knew, but we felt entitled to their wealth, and we took our share every afternoon at her house. None of us were even close to poor, but two or three of our houses could fit into Agatha's one. And that doesn't even count the land and the outbuildings behind her house, or her mother's horses, each of their care costing as much as a year of private college tuition. The only reason we girls pretended to like Agatha was because of her indoor pool and home theater and that entire room just for racing radio-controlled cars with her father. After swimming or racing cars, we'd always end up in our favorite spot, the basement rec room with the squishy couches and the mirrored wall and the giant TV playing videos on MTV. Agatha's parents left us alone. At the top of the basement stairs, her mother left endless trays of hot pizza and warm melty cookies and freshly squeezed juices. And then her mother would disappear for the rest of the afternoon to be with her horses. You could tell that Agatha was jealous of those horses. When Agatha's mother first met me, she asked very slowly, enunciating every syllable in her twangy accent, what kind of an oriental are you? I'd never seen Agatha turn so red. Even her neck blushed. Agatha grabbed her mother's hand and pulled her out of the room. I've never had one in my home before. Agatha, what's so wrong about asking? I heard her mother say, they're good people. Your father fought in Nam and your grandfather in Korea. That's why I want to know which kind she is. Even from another room, we could hear her mother scold. Now, Agatha, you know you're not supposed to get excited, the doctor said. Agatha apologized to me later, and until I said, really, I don't care, about a hundred times, her face didn't return to its normal color. She explained that they moved from a place where generations of their family had lived and everyone was the same, and I realized that Agatha meant white. She told me that the only Mexicans and blacks that stepped foot into their town left after the workday. 
There were no Orientals, except for that one Chinese family who owned a restaurant a good 20 miles out of town and made the best chicken fingers and crab ragoons, and they always ate there on holidays because every other restaurant was closed. Agatha's mother was still adjusting to the big change and had never lived away from her people. I didn't understand how our small town could be so different from theirs. Our town's diversity was my family, one mixed-race family with a white father and black mother, two sisters adopted from Korea into a white Christian family, and people who liked to talk about their immigrant ancestors coming to this country with nothing in their pockets, always from Italy or Ireland, sometimes Greece, who created jobs and spoke English with charming accents from the old country. My parents aren't racist, Agatha explained. They believe in live and let live, in separate but equal. I wanted to say, double think. I only knew Agatha's father from the oil painting of him in the foyer, glaring sternly at all who dropped their backpacks and coats onto the floor. He never came home until after dinner, after we were long gone, but he left his cabinet of VHS tapes of R-rated movies unlocked. We even found an X-rated tape of an orgy mislabeled as personal finance seminar. <laughs> at first, we watched silently, but after a few minutes, once our eyes adjusted to the grainy footage and we understood what we were seeing, we could not bear the starkness of those bodies with all their noises and fluids and hair, the reality of their genitals, nothing like our fantasies. And despite the desire and heat building in our bodies, we screamed in unison, turn it off. By then, we knew each other so well that we could finish each other's sentences. In 1984, we girls made many mistakes, but the biggest one was allowing Agatha to play our game. She was excused from gym on account of her condition, which none of us had asked her about, so Agatha did not know about our game until she caught us doing it in her rec room. We loved our afternoons at Agatha and didn't want to make her mad. We felt so free there, but we weren't good at including Agatha in our jokes and stories, and at some point during our hangouts, we would notice that she would disappear. None of us could tell you how long she'd been gone. Sometimes we would play our game, and Agatha, and after, Agatha would return to find us watching music videos, slumped in the couches like sleeping cats. One afternoon, after Christy fell, she pointed to the door, and we saw Agatha watching us, her eyes wide and her mouth tight, looking at us as if we were having an orgy. She disappeared, and we heard her stomp upstairs. We were scared to lose access to her house. It wasn't fair. It belonged to us. That was my chair and my metal tumbler that I drank freshly squeezed lemonade from. We could not give this up. Doreen followed Agatha to the second floor and then the third floor. Out of breath, she found Agatha sitting alone in the library, pressed against the window. Was she looking for her mother's horse? Would she tell on us? Doreen pleaded. Come back downstairs, please, pretty, pretty, please. We let Agatha watch as the rest of us took our turns. We didn't think she'd want to try it, her condition. But Agatha begged so much that she cried actual tears. Even though she was taller than Doreen, she seemed so small and terrified. Are you sure? You don't have to, Doreen said. Agatha said, I want to be one of you girls. After, Agatha slid to the floor and her face and neck stayed bright red. We were worried. Doreen kicked her shoulder gently with her foot and then harder until Agatha finally woke up. 
She didn't sit up, but stayed on the floor for many moments, blinking her eyes and opening and closing her mouth like a fish. Finally, she spoke. I want to do it again. We girls looked at each other, unsure how to proceed. Usually, we had a day or two between turns. My parents treat me like a sick girl, Agatha said, but I'm not. I'm just a regular girl like you. I spoke up. Doreen, if that's what she wants, we should give it to her. Yeah, Doreen, Agatha said. Give me what I want. Doreen shrugged. Fine, whatever. Agatha wobbled back to the wall. Doreen pushed and pressed into her. She was doing it differently this time, harder and longer than usual. We didn't even need to see Doreen's face to know that she was pissed. Maybe she was mad at having to kiss up to Agatha and show her our game in the first place. Or maybe she was angry about something she had forgotten about until that very moment. Or maybe Doreen was expressing what all of us had wanted to do to Agatha at one time or another. Her weakness and her wealth and her misery tapped so hard into our rage that we wanted to squeeze our anger out of her. Agatha on the floor, blue not red. She didn't come back, even though Doreen kicked her and rolled her and shook her. Kate had been working on her life-saving badge for Girl Scouts before she quit, but she knew enough to start CPR. Agatha's body started to convulse and seize, and someone grabbed the nearest soft thing around, my copy of 1984, and stuck it between Agatha's teeth so she wouldn't bite her tongue. Sue called 911. Until that moment, all these actions were theoretical, things we had been taught to prepare for. In the moment, we responded to the emergency like the adults we were becoming. I ran, looking for Agatha's mother. I was so anxious that I didn't realize I was chewing on my sweater's zipper and the metal teeth had cut into my mouth. At first, Agatha's mother thought that the emergency was about my bleeding lips. By the time I found her mother in the horse stable sweeping, we could hear the sirens speeding closer towards us. Once we were certain that Agatha would survive, although much impaired, as the choking had caused a stroke, which caused the rest of the dominoes to fall, everyone turned on me. We girls were summoned to a meeting at the hospital where Agatha was re recovering. Our parents, the doctors, Agatha's parents, and everyone's lawyers gathered around a conference table. Everyone around that table was white, even our lawyer. Our parents could have gone with a Filipino lawyer, a friend of a friend who offered a discount to Kababayan, but they paid extra for the white lawyer. It was a waste of money. It was already decided I was the bad one. The girls said that I was the one who had encouraged Agatha to play. Doreen tried to warn her on account of her condition, but I had insisted. You know how powerful peer pressure is, Doreen said. Poor Agatha wanted to be one of us. I had wanted that, too, to be one of the girls. I didn't know the glass between us could never be broken. Like Agatha, I was a loser. Across the table, Agatha's mother was drilling me and my parents with their blue eyes, and I wondered if I had proven her theory. Was I the wrong or right kind of Oriental? I spoke up. But Doreen, whose hands actually did it? The adults excused us girls, and we learned later that they signed papers and cut checks. The girls went downstairs to the cafeteria. They didn't ask me to join them. I found Agatha's room, private of course, and sat by her bed. She was sleeping and hooked up to all kinds of intimidating machines. I made myself look at what I had done. 
As I watched Agatha's chest go up and down to the beat of the machines, I suddenly had trouble finding my own breath. I put Agatha in this bed, but I wasn't solely responsible. What did my presence matter? She didn't even know I was there. I stood up quietly so that the chair didn't scrape the floor. I was shaking. I needed air, but the plate glass window had no opening. I pressed my face against the glass and imagined I could melt through it to the outside. I wiped the fog with my sleeve to study the view. It was after work and the riverside streets were mashed with cars. Joggers, walkers, and bikers exercised on the path beside the river, and on the water, people sailed and sculled. The sun glinted off the waves like shards of glass. None of those people knew or cared about what was happening in this hospital room. Would I be one of those people one day? Someone with a life? I could not imagine my future, but I have had a feeling that Agatha would never leave it. And then a memory appeared. My teacher, Mrs. H, standing by the classroom window after handing out 1984 in the long-anticipated year of 1984. Was it everything she had hoped for? Would the student who held my next copy of the Orwell even notice that it was twice bitten? If I had learned anything from Mrs. H, it was that this was one of those indelible moments. Sometimes we need to stop everything and pay attention. Here we are, right now. This is it the eternal present, and yet everything can change in an instant. Isn't it terrible and sad and frightening and awe-inspiring and ordinary and beautiful? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, next slide. Um, that's my niece. Um, and then next after that. Um, okay, so this is, um, I'll read to you uh, a flash essay I wrote a couple weeks ago um, based on a photograph, and um, I'll talk about it tomorrow when um, we have the craft lecture. Um, okay, so you can go to the next slide, please. Okay, so this is a photo, the photo that I wrote about for this flash piece. My mother sits with one bare foot on the chair her knee becomes an armrest, her shin touching the table where her family eats breakfast, a cigarette in one hand, a beer in the other. It's a warm evening in 1977, back when we lived on the top floor of a triple-decker in Boston. She is 30 years old. So far, she has three children, disappointments for being born daughters, and yet her husband wants to keep trying until they get sons. Years from now, they will have two, and at first, the boys will solve their problem of unhappiness until even they fail to make their parents happy. On this night, I am five and asleep by the time my father sneaks out of the bedroom where he's studying and points the lens at my mother. Still, I can see him saying, caught you, as he laughs for getting away with something. He taunts her, threatening, now your family will see how America has changed you. What are you now, a women's liber, a feminist? After two years in America, my mother is different. She is finally out of sight of her mother, her elderly titas, her older ates, and all the women who enforced womenhood. She is out of the whisper range of the helpers who are always listening 
and sometimes curry favor by reporting their observations to her mother. Even God himself, at least the Catholic one that the Spanish colonizers brought to the Philippines, has been left behind in the Philippines. In America, for the first time in her life, she is free. And yet, she's bone tired doing things that she's never had to do before. Scrubbing floors and toilets, shopping and cooking, her fingers chapped and cracking from detergents and soaps, the constant washing of her hands after changing the baby's diapers. Back home, a single person did a single job. Back home, each house was alive with kasambahai, the lavandera, the cook, the housemaids, and at least one yaya per child. In the States, my mother is all alone with all the jobs, free to be alone with her aloneness. She hasn't yet given up the idea of working professionally. After all, she's studied her whole life towards becoming a doctor. If the babysitter shows up, she rides the orange line to work at a lab. She's not sure she should trust the women she hires and eventually fires, these unsupervised strangers, to care for her babies. Back home, her mother managed the kasambahai because someone needed to watch the watchers. When her five kids are in high school and college, my mother finds out she's a published author in multiple science papers. She worked in a research lab before she decided she could not be both in this country, a mother and a physician. And it turns out that the supervising doctor included her name on the studies she contributed to. But she finds out long after anyone remembers that she had been a doctor once too. In the Philippines, she was a radiologist. But in America, she is a cook, a driver, a bank machine, a permission giver, her, mother's, her children's mother, and her husband's wife. In the photo, at 30, she is young enough for her body to remain thin after the pregnancies. She is on the cusp of her adult life. Except for the recent loss of her father when she first kissed grief, she's still too early in her life to know the worst pain ahead. Abandonment, betrayal, loneliness, despair, the common stuff. Her face is unlined and unworried. Her babies are finally asleep. The littlest one took most of her bottle. The two older ones brush their teeth. The tiny plastic toys that get underfoot are picked up. The appliances are wiped clean and protected with dust covers until tomorrow when she'll sacrifice again, doing the work of house helpers and for the sake of the family, help her husband pass the exam for foreign medical graduates. If he doesn't pass, they'll have to go home. But which place is home? She can't believe she feels this way after only two years. Everything and everyone she loved is on the other side of the world. But the truth is that she doesn't want to return there. This version of herself would never be happy back there. That self always agreed with her mother and did whatever the church asked. This self talks back to her husband. She asks for what she wants. And what she wants is the freedom to find out who she will become. Before she settles down to relax at the breakfast table, she even slips a cigarette from her husband's pack and fishes one of his beers from the vegetable crisper. She's never drunk a soda, much less a beer, straight from the bottle before. Her mother taught her that a lady only drinks from a drinking glass, never a bottle or a straw. But her mother isn't here to warn her about all the ways to avoid becoming a slut, a sinner, a ruined woman. Anyway, it's already too late. Thank you.